again. Welcome to the Great Australian episode of History Bites. This episode answers the question of how we finally became Australia. Which is to say, why aren't we still part of Britain, floating a long way south? Why are we one country? We could have been many nations. You could be from the country of Queensland or Van Diemen's Land or Aurelia in the West. Imagine if Tasmania had to send teams to all the Olympic sports on its own. A lot of Tasmanians would get to be in teams, but maybe they wouldn't win too many gold medals. In episode two, you heard about the gold rush, if you listened. I talked about the Eureka Stockade, where gold miners fought the government. The stockade was pulled down pretty quickly by the soldiers. But people's feelings about government were harder to squash. The miners' organisation, called the Reform League, had started something even bigger than a fight over tax. This is what the Ballarat Times newspaper said in 1854. This league is nothing more or less than the germ of Australian independence. No power on earth can now restrain the headlong strides for freedom of people of this country. The newspaper was getting a little bit carried away with enthusiasm when it talked about headlong strides for freedom. Most people's headlong strides were towards the goldfields or the sheep stations, not politics. All of Australia still belonged to Britain. But the idea of independence, the colonies managing themselves, was now out in public. Still, Australian independence could wait. And it did for half a century. But there were baby steps towards running ourselves. In 1856, for example, the colony of South Australia gave all its men aged over 21 the right to vote. It took another 40 years for men across Australia to have that right. On paper, that mostly included Aboriginal men. But they missed out in Western Australia and Queensland, right up until the 1960s. Each colony was doing its own thing, as you might have realised. New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, West Australia, Tasmania and Victoria each had their own government, their own taxes, even their own railway systems. If a farmer wanted to send his wheat, for example, to another state by train, it had to be unloaded from one train and reloaded onto another train at the border between states. The farmer also had to pay taxes on those foreign goods. It was very annoying, especially for people who lived near the border of two colonies. And it got in the way of making money. A politician in New South Wales called Henry Parks suggested to the other colonies that 
The time has arrived when these colonies should be united by some federal bond of connection. He saw the colonies as an infant empire. That was in 1867. The infant took a long time to be born. By 1881, Parkes had become Premier of New South Wales. He persuaded the other states to set up a federal council to talk about taxes, telegraphs, and railways. But then he changed his mind and didn't join in. By 1889, Parkes was getting old. He had been premier three times. One day after lunch, he said to the governor of New South Wales, "I could achieve federation of the colonies in twelve months." He was not very humble about his abilities. "Why don't you?" the governor replied. "It would be a glorious finish to your life." A couple of months later, Parks went to talk to the Queensland government about federation. On the way back, he stopped at a town called Tenterfield in New South Wales and gave a speech. I believe that the time has come, he said. Again, it was time to think about the creation on this Australian continent of an Australian government and an Australian parliament. Putting all the states together to form a federation—that is, a group of states with one central government. Was a grand idea, but there was plenty to argue about. There were people who argued for federation. Our continents can have one system for transport and communication. And there were people who argued against it. We don't want a federal government telling us what to do. And for we can get rid of all the different taxes that get in the way of business. And against, but our colony doesn't want to lose its taxes. And for a federal government can make laws to keep people out, like islanders and Chinese people. A federal government can run an army to protect Australia from invasion by Germany, Russia, or China. And against. A national army and government will be expensive. We don't want to pay for it. And for us, big colonies should get more say. We have more people. And against us, little colonies are going to be ignored. You get the picture. People arguing about money, about who gets how much of it, about who gets how much say, how to stop people coming to this country, and so on. Sounds similar to politics today. In 1890, a high-powered bunch of premiers and politicians met for a conference. Out of the conference in 1891 came a convention, which was another meeting. Out of the convention finally came something that wasn't a meeting. The colonies agreed to a constitution, a set of rules that would tell everyone how the country was going to run. But it was only a first draft. It was all pretty 
confusing for the people and the politicians too. Did you know we could have been Australasia instead of Australia? Both Fiji and New Zealand were invited to be a part of Federation. But they both said, No! Why not? Well, one New Zealand politician said his colony was much better at giving rights to Indigenous, or as he put it, Native people. Thank you very much. New Zealand didn't want to be ruled by a parliament of mostly Australians that cares nothing and knows nothing about Native administration. To make life more miserable, a lot of banks went broke in 1891-1893. And people had money worries to think about instead. Finally, in 1900, all the colonies voted yes on a final Australian constitution. At last, you're thinking, it took those guys years to get their act together. True. But the land down under wasn't independent yet. The constitution needed a yes vote from the British government and the Queen. Representatives from all the colonies except WA sailed off to London, constitution in hand. they arrived, they were treated very nicely. They went to the races on the royal train. They went to dinner with the worshipful company of ironmongers. Whatever they were, they sound like a heavy metal band, but I don't think the politicians did too much headbanging in their top hats. They even got tea with Queen Victoria. The colonies' representatives asked Britain to pass the constitution without making a change. However, the British politician in charge of the colonies thought that was pure cheek. I'll see them damned first, he said. But the colonials didn't back down. In the end, the two sides agreed to change a few of the words without taking any real powers away from the future Australian government. Alfred Deakin, Edmund Barton and Charles Kingston, two future Prime Ministers and a Premier, held hands and danced around the room for joy. On the 1st of January 1901, Down Under became the nation of Australia. The infant empire was finally born. (laughs) But wait! Before we sing the national anthem, let's check our facts. Australia in 1901 was not quite like Australia today. We didn't have a capital, a currency, a flag or an anthem. We didn't count Aboriginal people as part of the new nation. Our citizens were still called British subjects and we shared Queen Victoria as head of state.
but at least we were Australia. As Henry Parks put it, one people, one destiny. I haven't told you even half the story. There's plenty more in the Upside Down History of Down Under. In later episodes, you can listen to stories set in colonial Australia. The Bushrangers Boys and Our Australian Girl Meet Letty. And we'll travel to China for some Asian-flavoured history bites. And then there's all the Australian history still to happen. You are part of that. Thank you to Ming, Shu, Jack, Alex and Sophia for their voices today. Thank you for listening. And I wish you all the best as you write your bit of Australian history.